Well, I want to welcome you to the final week. You made it to the final week, week number three of this brief little journey where for the last couple of weeks and completing today, we're thinking about this question, does God have the answer? Now, of course, that's a rhetorical question because we, we know that God has the answer to whatever question it is that we're asking, God has the answer. But over the last couple of weeks, and again today, we're, we're asking some questions about some pretty difficult topics. Uh, two weeks ago, we began by asking the question, does God have the answer when it comes to the issue of abortion? This, this question of pro-life versus pro-choice, does God have the answer to that question? And we found that he does. The pages of God's word make it very, very clear to us that God creates every life and he sanctifies every life and that Every human being is created in the image of God. And therefore, every life must be protected. The answer is this. The church should be, must be pro-life because God is pro-life. And that means that we don't just proclaim it or pound the the podium or stomp our foot and say we're pro-life, but it means that we offer ministry and grace and help and healing to those who are making the choice for life. Does God have the answer to the issue of abortion? He certainly does. Secondly, last week we asked the question, does God have the answer to the issue of racism? Can God help us with the chasm, the division that so often exists between races? The answer is that God does have the answer, and the answer is that he calls us to reconciliation at the cross, that it's in the cross that we are joined together, not just getting along together, but literally that we become one when we come together at the cross. Does God have the answer to abortion? He does. Does God have the answer to racism? He does. Today, we're going to be dealing with the third issue, and that is the issue of politics. Does God have the answer for how Christians ought to approach the subject of politics? Now, I think you'll agree with me, won't you, that this is a very timely uh, and relevant subject for us to discuss today, uh, particularly when you consider the fact that we are 64 days away from a national election. And we are 64 days away from this national election in which I'm convinced that our country is more polarized over political the political divide than we have ever been in my lifetime. Now that's a pretty long lifetime, half century, 55 I am. I believe that we are more polarized than we've been in the last 50 years, at least maybe in the last 200 plus years in the history of our nation. And that polarization has resulted in a rancor and an anger and and name calling and mudslinging and really general nastiness all around the subject of politics. And really it's that anger and that nastiness and that tension that exists around this subject that has prompted me to speak about it. Now, not because I believe that anybody in our church would be nasty about the subject of politics. Amen? You would never do that, right? Not because I think we maybe are being particularly nasty, but because 
in this particular season of division, I'm convinced that the church needs to speak boldly into this division. I think the church needs to bring the answer to this issue of politics. Now, everybody, or I should say not everybody, agrees with what I just said. Not everybody thinks that you should speak about politics if you are a person of faith. In fact, let me, uh, let me give you a true or false quiz this morning. They're going to put the statement up on the screen that all of you have heard. It's this, religion and politics don't mix. True or false? What do you think? True or false? Religion and politics don't mix. Well, you know, there are a lot of people, in fact, there are plenty of people who believe that that statement is true. There are plenty of people who believe that if you have a faith persuasion, then you are excluded from any discussions or any debates about the issue of politics. I see this in my own life. You know, if you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, you know that I almost never, can I say it again? Almost never post anything other than pictures of my grandchildren, which of course are wonderful and safe from criticism. But if I ever post anything remotely political, and I almost never do, but if I ever post anything almost political, which by the way would mean that I didn't ask Tracy's permission because if I asked, she says no every single time. But if I ever do, you can count on it. I'll get about a dozen comments from people who will say, you shouldn't be talking about that. You're a pastor. And if you're a pastor, you shouldn't be saying things that are political. You're abusing your position of influence by speaking into the political environment. There are a lot of people who believe this, that if you have a faith persuasion, then you should not speak about issues related to politics. Let's parse the statement just a bit to answer the question whether or not it's true or false. When, when we say religion, we're not really talking about religion, are we? We're really talking about a personal relationship with God through Jesus. And so we would, we would talk about faith, our personal faith in Jesus. And here's what you know if you are a follower of Jesus. It is that your faith in Christ is central to who you are, right? It's not an aspect of your life that you put on and take off like you put on and take off a jacket. It is central to you to who you are. It is defining of who you are. It is transformative of your life and you cannot lay it off. Therefore, In any discussion, in any decision, in any matter, your faith must play a role in how you feel about that particular issue. You know that that is the truth. Which means, if I cannot set my faith aside, and I'm a person of faith, if I cannot set my faith aside, then either I must mix my faith with politics or I have to say I can't be political, be involved at all, or ever, ever talk about politics. Well, let's think about the word politics for a second. The word politics, by the way, you may not know this, it is a Bible word. 
The word politics comes from a Greek word which appears in your New Testament over 160 times. The Greek word is polis, P-O-L-I-S, polis, and it means the city or the state or the community. In our case, it would even include the nation, but it means the, the community of people. It's a Bible word. And the word politics comes from another Greek word, politica, which means the affairs of the people or the affairs of the community or the affairs of the state. So when we talk about politics, here's what we're talking about. Politics relates to how people live together in community. And more specifically, how decisions are made about how people live together in community. All of which leads us to this point. If we're going to talk about politics, here's what we should understand it means to be political. Write this down somewhere. To be political is to seek to influence the actions of those who govern your community. That's a pretty good definition. If we're asking the question, should Christians be political? Should religion or faith and politics mix? We have to know what politics is, and it simply is when people seek to influence the actions of those who govern our community. Now, all of that to ask and answer this question, should Christians be involved? I would say the answer is an emphatic yes. Christians absolutely should be involved in politics. And we must enter into the, the conversation knowing that our faith comes with us. We don't check it at the door. It comes with us because it influences everything about our values and our beliefs and our way of thinking and our priorities. And it must affect how we approach and what we believe about politics. Christians should be involved in politics. Now here's, here's where we get in trouble. And here's where many Christians become polarized from each other. So Christians become divided over issues. It's not when we are political, but rather it is, in, it is when we were, are more partisan than we are political. And there is a difference. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines partisanship as strong and sometimes blind adherence to a particular party or faction or cause or person. That's partisanship. And when Christians are very partisan, then we get into all kinds of division. Now let's be clear. Our faith will influence our values and our values will typically align us more closely with a particular piece of legislation or a particular initiative or a particular party even or a particular candidate. Our values will align us one way or the other. But I want to say something very clearly. Listen to me. As followers of Jesus Christ, our allegiance is to Christ our Lord, not to any particular party or to any particular government. I want to say that again. I want you to hear me and do not be confused at all about what I'm saying. We are followers of Jesus Christ. And as such, our first allegiance is to Jesus Christ as Lord. Christ is my Lord. I am not a partisan. 
I am a, uh, in alignment with, I'm, my allegiance is to Jesus. So should religion and, and uh, politics mix? Absolutely they should. We should be political, yet not particularly partisan. Now, you have your Bibles open to John chapter number 18. And the reason that I've asked you to turn there today is because it is a chapter which is filled with the events or the details surrounding a very political happening, a very political circumstance. This passage, along with chapter number 19, records for us the arrest and the trial and the ultimate crucifixion of Jesus. And there are a lot of people involved in what's happening in this arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus. The passage records for us the response of the disciples of Jesus to the fact that he's been arrested. The passage records for us the indifference and the condescension of the Jewish king, King Herod. It records for us the, the demands of the angry mob who were shouting in the streets and demanding the crucifixion of Jesus. It records for us the very influential pressure applied on the entire process by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And it records for us the decisions made by the Roman government through Pilate the Roman governor uh, in, uh, in the Middle East and in Jerusalem. And so what you have contained in this passage are Jewish authorities, Roman governmental authorities, a late night arrest, an early morning trial, and a whole lot of people being really political. And it's instructive to us and so I want you to follow along as I read, beginning in chapter 18 and verse number 1. John chapter 18, verse 1. And we're going to kind of skip around at uh, just parts of the passage. Verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, into which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oftentimes resorted there with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers and uh, officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? Who are you looking for? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said unto them, I am he. Now, by the way, Jesus did not say, I am he. The word he is added into our English translation for clarity. What Jesus actually said is, I am. I am. Which is reminiscent of Moses in the book of Exodus at the burning bush when he says, who should I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them, I am. That's his name, I am. Jesus said, I am. And Judas also which betrayed him, was with them. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am, they fell backward. They went backward and fell to the ground. <laughs> it's almost a comical scene, isn't it? They come looking for Jesus. They've got their torches and their lanterns and their swords and their weapons and they're ready for a fight. And 
Meek and humble Jesus walks out. Who are you looking for, guys? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't recognize him. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. And in the power of that divine declaration, they fall back and fall to the ground. And you can almost see Jesus going, come on, get up, get up, get up. Who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. If therefore you're looking for me, let these disciples go their way. He said that, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, of them which you have given me, I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then Jesus said to Peter, put up your sword into the sheath. The cup which my father has given me, shall I not drink it? And then the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Skip over to verse 28, if you will. The next morning, they led Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. That's Pilate's hall. It was early in the morning, and they themselves, this is the high priest, the priests, the Pharisees, they themselves did not go into the judgment hall, the Roman pagan judgment hall, lest they should be defiled. They wanted to be able to partake of the Passover. Now, the irony of that statement is too grand to talk about today, that as they deliver the Son of God to his crucifixion unjustly, they're afraid about stepping into the into Pilate's hall, lest they be defiled. That will be for another message. Verse 29. So Pilate went out unto them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If he were not a malefactor, or an evildoer, a criminal, if he were not a criminal, we would not have delivered him unto you. Then Pilate said to them, Take him, take him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. That the saying, might, uh, saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. And then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, what John doesn't tell us, Luke does. And it is that in this moment, the, the Jews um, accuse Jesus of treason by saying that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Therefore, he not only is taking authority over the Jews, he's standing in defiance to Caesar and Rome by claiming to be a king. Now, that got Pilate's attention. And so he says to Jesus in verse 35, or verse number 33, are you the king of the Jews? Well, Jesus says, do you say this thing of yourself, or did someone else tell it thee of me? Pilate answered and said, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from here. Pilate therefore said unto him, so you are a king then. Jesus answered and said, you are right. Thou sayest that I'm a king. Or that's right, I'm a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said unto him, what is truth? And then one more brief part of chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 9. 
Pilate then went again into the judgment hall and said to Jesus, where have you come from? Jesus answered him, not. And Pilate said to him, are you not going to speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you or I have power to release you? And Jesus answered and said, you could have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee has the greater sin. Now, of course, this passage relating to us the passion of Jesus is filled with emotion. It's filled with agendas. It's filled with hatred and love all at the same time. It's full of cruelty uh, all along the journey. And Jesus in this moment is surrendering himself. He's submitting himself to the Jewish authorities and to the Roman government ultimately to be crucified. And we know why he did this. We know exactly why Jesus surrendered himself to allow this to happen. We sang about it this morning. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's why he submitted to this entire process. We know why it happened. But our focus today is not so much on the glorious outcome of these events, but rather on the process itself. And what the process teaches us about human government, the role of human government, and God's superintendence over human government. And maybe more importantly, or most importantly for us today, what it teaches us about the right role of Christians in the political process. And so let's learn those things. Write this down, if you will, uh, somewhere in your notes. Just get this fundamental fact uh, written down. It is that God has ordained human government. God ordained human government. Now, when you finish writing that, and I know you have a pen because you're writing it, so when you, when you finish writing down God ordained human government, I want you to see it in the text. And you'll see this in chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. And three times in those two verses, I want you to circle the word power, power, power. Three times in verses 10 and 11. Pilate says, I have power to crucify you. I have power to release you. And Jesus says, you have no power except the power you've been given from God. Now, usually when we read the word power in the Bible, we think about strength. The word that's most often translated power in the Bible is the Greek word um, uh, dunamis, and it means supernatural or superhuman strength. That's not the word here. This word has nothing to do with strength. This is a word which means authority. The Greek word is exousia, and it means the authority to act. Literally translated, exousia is the authority to exercise jurisdiction. I have authority over you. What Pilate said to Jesus is this, I have power over you. I am the Roman governor. I am the arm of Rome in Palestine. I have authority over you. I can have you crucified. I can have you released. The authority, the power is mine. Now we all know, don't we, that in truth, Pilate had no power over Jesus at all. 
Jesus willingly submitted to this. It was Christ himself who said, no man takes my life, I freely lay it down. But while he didn't have any power over Jesus uh, exactly without Christ submitting to it, Jesus did not contradict his declaration that he had power. And, And by remaining silent on that issue, or really speaking the words that he spoke about God giving that power, he did not deny that as the Roman governor, Pilate did have great authority. In fact, do you realize that way back in the very first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, God ordained human government? Look at it. Genesis chapter number 9 and verse 6 says this. Whosoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made him. This is Genesis 9. It's immediately following the global flood the flood of Noah, where God judged the human family in a great flood of water. After that global flood, the waters receded and the ark landed and off of the ark came the entire surviving human family. Noah, his wife, Shem, Ham, Japheth, their three sons and their three wives. The entire human population, eight people total. And in that moment, God looked at Noah and he said, from this day forward. When someone among you, someone in the human family violates a law, sheds man's blood, it will be up to you, Noah, to man. It will be up to mankind to exercise the authority or the enforcement of laws among mankind. From Genesis 9 forward, God gave to man the responsibility of governing, establishing laws, and enforcing those laws. This is affirmed very plainly in the New Testament as well, in Romans chapter 13. Let me just read it to you. Romans 13 verse 1. Let every soul, every one of us, be subject unto the higher powers. Again, exousia, the authorities, the government. Let everyone be subject to the higher powers, for there is no authority, no power, but of God. And the powers that be, that is the powers in the earth, are ordained of God. Now listen to this. What Paul says in Romans 13 is that the government and the enforcement arm of the government, the police force, that the government has been given their authority by God. Verse 2, whosoever therefore resists that authority is resisting the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Will you then not be afraid of the power? Will you then not be afraid of the authorities? Do that which is good, and you shall have praise of the same. For he, the power, the authority, he is the servant of God to you for good. Now here's what the Bible says. If y'all are listening, shout amen. Don't miss it. Here's what the Bible says, that the human government, the government that God has given to us is intended to be God's servant among us for our common good. That is the design of God. He is the minister of God to thee for good, but if you do that which is evil, then be afraid. For he, he, that is the government, does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that does evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject to the government, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. 
Now again, very plainly, what the Bible says is that God has given lawmaking, governing, and enforcement among the human family to, that, that responsibility has been given to the human family. Now square that truth with the fact that there are some people in our nation today who are calling for the defunding of local police departments and the abolishing of the enforcement arm of the government, the abolishing of police forces. It's absolute lunacy. In fact, let me say it plainly, anyone who calls for the abolishing of the police is a clueless, godless anarchist and we must understand, and I don't want to be, I want to be perfectly clear about this. At Brookstone Church, we stand in support of and firmly with the men and women of law enforcement. We thank God for them. And by the way, many of you here today are members of that community. You are uh, men and women of law enforcement. We thank God for you. Anyone who says let's abolish that doesn't understand this principle that God has given the responsibility of governing and enforcement to the human family. But while Jesus acknowledged that authority that Pilate had, the authority that human government has, he reminded Pilate, look at it in chapter number um, 19, verse 11, when he said, you would have no power over me except that power which has been given to you, delegated to you from God or from above. So while he acknowledged the authority of human government, Jesus reminded the the, the governor, Pilate, that his authority had been given to him by God. Now listen to me very carefully. Human government has no inherent authority. Human government has no inherent authority. The authority that government has has been given to them by God. Now, by the way, this is the beauty and the, and the glory of the American form of government. Because in the second sentence of our Declaration of Independence, did you hear, the, did you hear what I said? The second sentence, influenced by the scriptures, our founders acknowledged that our rights and the authority to, in, to, uh, to govern has been given to us by God Almighty. It's why America has been so blessed over the years because at the top of the stack is the authority of God and then delegated to the human family. And this is why. If you begin to excise God if you begin to excise the scriptures, if you begin to believe that religion and politics don't mix, we have to take God out of our cultural consciousness, out of our civil conversations, out of our courtrooms and our houses of legislature, out of our governor's offices, our mayor's offices, and the president's office. If you believe we take God out of that, then you don't just remove God from the conversation. Listen, you strip government of their power. And the only thing left is anarchy. God has given human government to the human family. The second thing then that we have to understand is that while we recognize the authority that God has given to the human government, 
we also recognize that Christ came to establish a greater kingdom. Jesus came to establish a kingdom, not a human government, but a heavenly kingdom. Can you imagine? I mean, we read through a lot of chapter 18 and part of chapter 19. Can you imagine Jesus on this morning, this night and and early morning? He's surrendering himself, totally surrendering himself to the process. When When the band of soldiers showed up in the garden and said, we're looking for Jesus, he said, I am, and they fell over like dead men. He didn't have to go with him. He surrendered himself to the process. I mean, can you imagine him? He's already on the night of his arrest. He's been taken before the high priest. He's been punched in the face, the gospels tell us. He's been, he's been beaten by the temple guard. He's kept overnight. Early the next morning before the sun rises, they, they take him up out of a pit. They bind him with chains and they walk him across Jerusalem to, to Pilate the Roman governor. Pilate's not interested in settling their dispute, and so he sends him off to Herod, the king of the Jews. He goes over to Herod's palace, and he's mocked there. Herod mocks him. Herod dismisses him as a nothing, sends him back over to to Pilate. Pilate now begins to get worried because now it's not just a Jewish dispute among their religious beliefs. Now he's, he's been accused of claiming to be a king. Now he's He's a threat to Caesar in Rome, and that strikes close to home for Pilate. The tension's building. Pilate hears constant shouting from outside of his office, crucify him, crucify him. The people are screaming. The mob is gathering. The the streets are filling up. Jesus is standing before him. What's he going to do with him? Everybody's angry. Sounds kind of like the world we're living in, doesn't it? Everybody's angry. And when you come to chapter number Uh, 18 in verse number 35, 36, 37, you can almost hear the the tension or even the rage in Pilate's voice. Look at chapter 18, verse 35, when he says, what have you done? (laughs) Everybody's mad. Pilate yells at Jesus, what have you done? And Jesus is cool as a cucumber. He just, in absolute peace, says, My kingdom is not of this world. You guys can have it. (laughs) You guys can have all the chaos and the anger. My kingdom's not from here. May I I take that peace off the pages of Scripture and just deposit it in your heart in this political season? Can I do that? Could, Could I implore you to have the peace that your kingdom is not of this world? And everybody around you is mad. And every post on your social media stream is slinging mud and angry and and name calling and, and, uh, and identifying people based solely on their political party or whatever. And everybody's angry. Would you just say, my kingdom's not of this world. Doesn't mean I'm uninvolved. Doesn't mean I don't care. But it means I don't have to get swept up in it. I don't have to get overwhelmed by it. I don't have to live under the tension and the pressure and the anger of it because I belong to another kingdom. And that's the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. Look at chapter number 18, verse number 36, where Jesus says these words, my kingdom is not of this world. And if you belong to Jesus, your kingdom is not of this world either. 
You know, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So yeah, we live in a world where there's a human government, a fallen world governed by fallen men, an imperfect place with imperfect people. There's a lot of anger and rancor over the political process, but we can just say, praise God, it's not my home. I'm part of another kingdom. Now, some of you would say, well, then does that mean we shouldn't be involved at all? We should just wash our hands of the entire process and not be involved in politics at all. Faith and politics shouldn't mix, you might say, because, hey, we're of another kingdom. No, I don't think that's true at all. This is the final point I want you to write down. It is that Jesus reminds us in his interactions with Pilate that kingdom people, well, kingdom people should bear witness of the truth to those in human government. Jesus, when confronted by Pilate in such an angry way, said, what have you done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. I, I do have a kingdom. I am part of a kingdom, but it's, an earth, it's, it's a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. Pilate says, oh, you, you are a king then. Jesus says, you're right, I'm a king. And here's what you need to know. I was born into this world. Do you see it, verse 37? I was born into this world. For this cause came I into this world, that I might bear witness of the truth. And everyone that hears my voice, or everyone that loves the truth, hears my voice. And then Pilate, this highly placed and powerful Roman official, the governor over the entire realm of the Middle East, looks at Jesus Christ in the midst of all of this anger, and he says, what is truth? By the way, that's the question people are asking today. Same question. What is truth? How do you live in this broken world? Why is everybody so angry at each other? Why are we so polarized? What can really be believed? What is truth? And so I want to remind you that you and I should participate in politics because we should answer Pilate's question. What is truth? We should bring the answer to that question into the political process. And so let me close by suggesting to you some ways that Christians should participate, should engage in the political process, which is to say, how should Christians seek to influence those who govern us? Let me begin by showing you how we shouldn't do it. Turn back to chapter 18 and verse number 10. Look at what Peter did. As is often the case, Peter's a pretty good example of what not to do. <laughs> chapter 18, verse number 10, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. That was Peter's foray into the political events of that evening. He drew his sword and got ready to fight. Now listen, I understand his motives. He loved his Lord. He wasn't going to let them come and arrest Jesus without putting up a fight. He felt like he was the defender, and that's, you know, I understand that. And he understood that Jesus was bringing a kingdom. He didn't know how that was all going to unfold, but he wanted to be part of that kingdom, so he was going to fight for his kingdom. But it was the wrong decision. Jesus said, put your sword up. So how should Christians participate in the, in the political process? Well, hear the word of Jesus in verse 10. Put your sword away. Now, I just love you enough to tell you, some of y'all have already drawn your sword. Your sword is a keyboard. Your sword are your thumbs. You have two of them. <laughs> and you should understand that while we should bring truth into the process, we are not called to fight for a kingdom in which we do not belong. 
Let me suggest to you rather some ways that we ought to participate. Number one, pray for our leaders. That's not a Sunday morning sentiment. It's a biblical command. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, command us, pray for all that are in authority, for kings and all that are in authority. This is Paul's command to Timothy and to us. We should pray for our leaders. And so pray for your city council and pray for your county commissioners and, and, and pray for our governor and our state legislature and our congressmen and senators and our, and our president. Pray for our leaders. Number two, Speak truth to power. It's part of the command of the church. We are called to be salt and light. And it is part of what we do. We speak the truth to power. It was Nathan, a prophet, religion, who pointed his finger at David, politics, and said, you're the man. You're acting immorally. You've been wrong. And it is the role of the church to look at government when government is immoral and say, you are wrong. That must change. John the Baptist did this with King Herod. When Herod was acting immorally, you are wrong, he said, and we should do the same. Pray and then speak truth to power. Number three, serve in government. Let me encourage that. You should participate. You should serve. Some of you have the gifts and the abilities and the calling to engage in the political process, not from the outside, but from the inside. Proverbs 29.2 says, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. It's a good thing. Run for the, for the school board. Run for the county commission or the city council. Run for public office. I'm so proud of one of our family members on Tracy's side of the family, uh, Eric Burns, who's running for state legislature seat and uh, wants to have an influence. I think many more should do that. A member of our church uh, is one of our county commissioners. Anthony Penland is a, is a member of our church. He was in our, in our earlier service. Do that. It's good. Many of you know that Mark Meadows, who was our congressman, is now the president's chief of staff, is a godly man, a member of Brookstone Church, and is in the highest office in the land, influencing the most powerful man in the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ every single day. It is a good thing when God's people are in office. And so I challenge you, uh, serve in government. Number four, disobey if necessary, but do it with humility. Not because I want to be a jerk. Not because I don't like some decisions, so I'm just going to bow up and be a jerk. No. But if the day should come when we must practice civil disobedience in order to obey God, then we must do that, but we must do it with humility and with respect. Acts chapter 5, this happened to the disciples when they were instructed, they were commanded by the authorities in Jerusalem, do not preach the name of Jesus. And they went out and preached the name of Jesus anyway. And the rulers brought them back in and said, we told you not to preach in the name of Jesus. And do you know what they said? They said, well, you'll have to decide for yourself whether or not you think it's a good idea for us to obey God or you. But we're going to tell you what we're going to do. We're going to obey God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the book of Daniel. They were instructed to worship Nebuchadnezzar. They said, sorry, we won't bow, we won't bend, and they wouldn't burn because they were willing to obey God. The time might come when government overreach, government laws will instruct or forbid us to worship or to live out our faith. 
And in that case, we will have to say, I'm sorry, our allegiance is to Christ. We will obey him. By the way, that's happening today in California and other states where churches have received cease and desist orders. They have been forbidden to gather for church and they're being fined every time they gather. And they're saying, I'm sorry, we have a higher authority. The time might come, we would have to do that. But if we do, we do it with humility uh, and uh, with respect. And then number five is that you should vote kingdom values. Now, this is what Jesus said when he says that we should bear witness to the truth. Well, how can I bear witness to the truth? How can I speak truth into human government? Well, in our system of government, we get to do that by voting. And so I would recommend to you that you vote kingdom values. Let me go further. I won't recommend it. I will challenge. I urge you, vote kingdom values when you vote. And so what does that look like? How do I know what are kingdom values and how would that direct and guide my vote? Let me suggest to you five questions you should ask when you go to vote. By the way, I'm going to vote and these five questions will guide my voting. And by the way, I'm going to vote in person. That's a side note, but I'm going to. And these five questions will guide my voting, not party, not person. These questions are kingdom value questions, and I will vote for the party, the person, the initiative that most closely aligns with these kingdom values. Now, let's get honest. We don't have very many Sunday school teachers running for office, right? And so I need to look for the the party, the person, the position that most closely aligns with kingdom values, and that's where I'm going to land. So what are those five things? I'm going to ask five questions. Number one, which candidate is most pro-church? And by that, I mean most pro-religious liberty. Because I believe when the church has liberty and freedom, religious freedom, to carry out the work of the gospel, then we have a better nation. So which party, which candidate, which policy is going to take the chains, the shackles off of religions and allow for religious liberty? Number two, which candidate is the most pro-life. We've already learned that God is pro-life. Every, every life is sacred, made in the image of God, needs to be protected. So when I go to vote, which party, which candidate, which policy, which position is going to mostly protect life? That's where I'm going to land. That's who I'm going to vote for. Number three, which candidate is the most pro-family? That is, which candidate most closely aligns with God's definition of marriage and family. Because I believe, and I believe the Bible teaches, that the strength of the nation is the family. And the family must be protected. Number four, which candidate is the most pro-law and order? Because God has established human government with laws ought to be enforced. So which candidate is going to be the most pro-law and order? And the number five, I don't want you to miss the last one, so if you're listening, say amen. Amen. Which candidate is the most pro-Israel? Pro-Israel. Because Genesis tells us in chapter 12, God says, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. So I want to know which party, which candidate is going to establish policies that will benefit, protect, and build up the nation of Israel. And that's where I'm going to land pro-church, pro-life, pro-family, pro-law and order, pro-Israel. These are kingdom values. Now, you may have others, but these are the five that are primarily going to drive what Jim Dykes does when he gets into the voting booth. I believe by voting, by answering those questions, then I can bring kingdom values to bear into human government. 
All of that to say, God ordained government, we ought to participate in it, and we ought to do it for the sake of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But let's celebrate that there's another kingdom coming. Amen? Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and we ought to look for his return. And I hope you know him as your personal Lord and Savior.